giving, that we would trust you more, that we wouldn't put our confidence in ourselves or in our own means or abilities, but that we would forever look to you as our provider, as our Father in heaven, and that we would give generously to you and to others, even with our very lives, because you have so graciously given to us all things in Christ Jesus. And so we give to to you now in faith, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. It is a long, you know it's a long passage if I tell you to be seated after the uh, prayer of thanksgiving, right? Turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 16. And while you're doing that, uh, because Jeremiah 16, you know, it's not one of the easier passages to find maybe, so it may take you a second to... To get there, we're, we're in the middle of, for those who aren't, haven't been with us, we're in the middle of the study through the book of Jeremiah. And this particular passage where we ended last week and where we're picking up today and where we're moving toward, uh, it just goes together. And so I need to try and cover it today. So buckle up. We're going to get, get, get through this. Jeremiah 16, beginning in verse 14. This is God's word. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, for I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. Behold, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. And afterward I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts of the rocks. For my eyes are on all their ways. They're not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. But first I will doubly repay their iniquity and their sin, because they have polluted my land with the carcasses of their detestable idols and have filled my inheritance with their abominations." O Lord, my strength and my stronghold, my refuge in the day of trouble, to you shall the nations come from the ends of the earth and say, Our fathers have inherited nothing but lies, worthless things in which there is no profit. Can man make for himself gods? Such are not gods. Therefore, behold, I will make them know. This once I will make them know that my power and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With a point of diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars. While their children remember their altars and their sharing beside every green tree and on the high hills, on the mountains and the open country, your wealth and all your treasures I will give for spoil as the price of your high places for sin throughout all your territory. You shall loosen your hand from your heritage that I gave to you. And I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know, for in my anger a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert, shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness, in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. 
The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his deeds, according to the fruit of his deeds. Like the partridge that gathers a brood that she did not hatch, so is he who gets riches but not by justice. In the midst of his days they will leave him, and at the end he will be a fool. A glorious throne set on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. Behold, they say to me, where is the word of the Lord? Let it come. I have not run away from being your shepherd, nor have I desired the day of sickness. You know what came out of my lips. It was before your face. Be not a terror to me. You are my refuge in the day of disaster. Let those be put to shame who persecute me, but let me not be put to shame. Let them be dismayed, but let me not be dismayed. Bring upon them the day of disaster. Destroy them with double destruction. Thus said the Lord to me, Go and stand in the people's gate, by which the kings of Judah enter, and by which they go out, and in all the gates of Jerusalem, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah, and all Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem who enter by these gates. Thus says the Lord, Take care for the sake of your lives, and do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day, or bring it into the gates of Jerusalem. And do not carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath, or do any work. But keep the Sabbath day holy, as I commanded your fathers. Yet they did not listen or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck, that they may not hear and receive instruction. But if you listen to me, declares the Lord, and bring in no burden by the gates of this city on the Sabbath day, but keep the Sabbath day holy and do no work on it, then there shall enter by the gates of this city kings and princes who sit on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their officials, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and this city shall be inhabited forever. And people shall come from the cities of Judah and the places around Jerusalem, from the land of Benjamin, from the Shephelah, from the hill country, from the Negev, bringing burnt offerings and sacrifices, grain offerings and frankincense, and bringing thank offerings to the house of the Lord. But if you do not listen to me to keep the Sabbath day holy and do not bear a burden and enter by the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in its gates and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem and shall not be quenched. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray that you would now do what only you can do and open it to our our hearts. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to just remind us briefly what we looked at last week because, again, this whole section is tied together. And just briefly, what we saw last week was that Jeremiah had been given a difficult role as a prophet. The task was difficult because he knew the people wouldn't repent. It was 40 years. I mean, it didn't take him long to realize that the people wouldn't repent. God told him the people wouldn't repent, at least as a whole. But he endured this. He also had a difficult task of being called not to marry, not to have a family, not to participate 
in the normal social customs of funerals and celebrations and so forth. He was cut off from his people that his life might be instructive to the people of Judah that they would become cut off in judgment. And so because of this, Jeremiah expresses his confessions or what we call complaints to the Lord. And at one point, we even see him cross the line accusing the Lord of deceit and the Lord calls him to repentance, to return to me, the very same word that Jeremiah has been instructed to give to the people over and over. And God promises that if Jeremiah does this, he will restore him. And then the backstory is given. And from that, the Lord tells them that uh, he's going to judge them again. We hear this. Now, a lot of people, a lot of people, a lot of uh, commentators, theologians, authors have taken this passage, and maybe as we read it this morning, you thought this too, that it just sounds like this hodgepodge of editorial like groupings, almost like there was Baruch and there was a bunch of stuff on the floor that didn't fit anywhere else, and he just stuck it all right here because it doesn't seem to flow together. And, and I get that, but I don't think that we have to take that explanation because I do think there is a theme. I do think there is logic in the order of this particular, uh, these words, this passage coming on the heels of what we saw through chapter 15 and into the beginning of chapter 16. The first thing is that it's quite understandable that God would want to encourage Jeremiah. I mean, Jeremiah has just listed another of his complaints. He's discouraged. He's downcast. He even despairs of life itself when he says, uh, would it that my mother had not borne me? You know, would it that I'd never been born? It would have been better. And then, of course, he crossed the line accusing God of deceit. So as God restores him, it would make sense then that he would encourage him now and give him words of hope. And the words of hope here are these words of restoration. Restoration for Judah. Not only would this encourage Jeremiah, but that it would encourage the people of Judah that after the discipline, after the judgment, would come restoration. God would bring them back to their land. But there's also this kind of far-off hint of restoration, that God is not only going to draw the nations together, uh, or the people, uh, the nation of Judah together, but he's going to call all the nations together through the Redeemer that he would send. God is going to bring in the people's to fulfill the promise given to Abraham that in you all the nations of the world would be blessed. So we see that here as well. So he not only encourages Jeremiah in that Judah would be restored, but he encourages Jeremiah that God would draw the nations to himself. But beyond these words of hope, we do see a clear theme, and that theme is trust in the Lord. We see this uh, either is specifically spoken or at least implied throughout every section of this passage. Both Jeremiah and the people of Judah are called to trust in the Lord in the midst of their discouragement, even in the midst of their discipline, right? God says, listen, you did this. It's your, it, you, you were worse than your father's. I've told you and told you and told you that if you won't repent, I'm going to discipline you. In a sense, it's your own fault, but yet be encouraged. <laughs> be encouraged because I'm going to restore you. Trust me in the midst of this. And so even in the midst of our own day, this is kind of relatable, isn't it? You know, we look around and the world is spiraling, right? It feels like. Or maybe you look in your own life and, you, and it seems like everything is falling apart. There are times where we might even be tempted to look at God's word and his promises and think, what does this mean for me? How does this help me 
in this situation or that situation. We despise even his promises. And to all of these things, God speaks to us in this passage and he says, trust me, trust me, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all your ways and he will make your path straight. That's, those are the words that echo throughout this passage. I hope you'll see this. So look in verse 14. It begins with the word therefore, and we always, when we see that word, need to look backwards. What's the therefore? Therefore, and it refers back to what God has just spoken to the people of Judah. Because you have done worse than your fathers, he said to them, for behold, every one of you follows a stubborn evil will, refusing to listen to me. Therefore, I will hurl you out of this land. Okay, that makes sense, right? God's going to judge them for the sin of their hearts. But then he gives another therefore, and he says, I'm also going to restore you. And so here is the beginning of these words of hope where the Lord foretells the day in which his people will no longer take an oath as the Lord lives who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. Right? They're going to one day say, as the Lord lives who brought us up out of Babylon, out of the north country. And not only us from the north country, but everyone who's been scattered as the Lord brings back his, his inheritance to the land. That one day, this is how the people will speak. Yes, the judgment has to come first before the restoration. Because you've done worse than your fathers. And because of that, the Lord is going to send those who would discipline Judah. He's going to send fishers and hunters And the use of these two metaphors is to demonstrate the thoroughness of the judgment. Don't think here of uh, fishermen with poles and hooks. This is probably more like fishermen with nets. That Babylon would come through first and would sweep up the people in a net. You know, the people didn't think the judgment was coming. We have to remind ourselves, Jeremiah's ministry, 40 plus years, right? The people were, uh, and we see it in this passage alone, where they were attacking him and accusing him of being a false prophet because the judgment wasn't coming. And they didn't think it was going to be as bad as Jeremiah spoke. So the Lord is telling them that first he's going to send fishermen with nets, and then for any who are left behind, there would be hunters who would come strategically. In other words, none will escape For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. But first, I will doubly repay their iniquity and their sin. The word for doubly here can also be translated fully, and I think that is really a better rendering, because it's not that God is going to go beyond his justice. He will remain just in his judgment, but he will judge to the full. And so the people here are called to trust God even before the judgment comes knowing that one day he will restore them. It sounds trite to equate it to this, but did your parents ever say this is for your own good before they disciplined you? (laughs) And it never seemed like it was for your own good when it happened. And yet God is saying that I'm going to discipline you because of your sin. And, And you deserve it. I mean, he's made that case over and over, and he'll continue to make the case through Jeremiah's ministry. But he gives them the words of hope, I'm going to restore you. Out of all the countries, out of the north country, out of all countries, I'm going to gather you every place that I've driven you. In verse 19, Jeremiah calls out to the Lord, and the emphasis here is on the personal trust in Yahweh. Note he says, my strength, my stronghold, my refuge. Like so many of Jeremiah's uh, poems that he writes, they sound a lot like the Psalms. Uh, we'll see the one even further in that sounds a lot like the psalm that we read together this morning. Jeremiah's praise is very personal. 
And then comes the foretaste of the hope that is on the horizon. Jeremiah states, the nations will recognize they have been duped into false worship. This is mind-boggling for the hearers of Jeremiah's message. You know, they thought they had it all together. They were God's chosen people. They had the temple worship, and they had Jerusalem, and they put their confidence in that. And here Jeremiah is coming and saying that the people, the nations, the Gohim, that's the word, it's a pejorative word, they're going to realize that they were, uh, they were in the wrong. But that's exactly what it says here, that their gods are no gods at all. They will realize the false hope that they've had in denying the Creator. They will realize that what they've believed is worthless in which there is no profit. And as a result, verse 21 says, Judah will be taught the power and the might of the Lord. In other words, God is going to use the nations to instruct his people that they have gone astray. And that's exactly what we read of in Romans 11, where Paul says, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Their trespasses meant riches for the world. That's us, right? We are the nations. We are the ones who have been gathered into the family of God. And so the message again here is trust in God who brings all of his purposes to fruition. This upside-down nature of using the nations to instruct his people who had been given the law, who had been, he had revealed himself to them, and he's going to use the nations? This is so backward. Who would do this? God is saying, trust me. Because when you think the world is falling apart, and when you think your life is falling apart, and when you think nothing makes sense, trust me because I am working, and it may not make sense now because my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. But in the end, I will accomplish all of my good purposes. That's his message to his people. Chapter 17 opens with a picture of sin that will later set the stage for what we see in chapter 31. And I really want to go to chapter 31 and show you how this is so connected, but we don't have time. So if you haven't read Jeremiah 31, I've referred to it a number of times because this is where we're, it's it's the good stuff when we get there. Uh, I encourage you to read Jeremiah 31 this week and you'll see how all of this is connected together. But here, Sin is pictured as being etched on a tablet. That is, it is nearly permanent or seemingly permanent. It is hard to erase. And later in Jeremiah 31, I'll tell you this, that God says, I'm going I'm to put my law on your hearts, right? So here, sin is pictured as etched into the hearts of the people. Don't miss the irony either that the law was given how originally on Mount Sinai. It was etched into stone tablets. So here the people have, in a sense, replaced the law by their sinful rejection of God. The tablet is their heart. And that, that, that idea of heart becomes a sub-theme here in this section, it's here in this verse, in verses 5, 9, and 10. Now, in our day, when we say heart, we typically think of emotions. That's how we uh, understand the word heart. But in, in the ancient Near East, the heart was representative for the whole inner person. It actually meant more like kidneys. Uh, but that doesn't sound as good, and so we use the word heart. Uh, but it's more than just the emotions. It's the entire inner person. And that's important for us to remember uh, because this, the heart is talked about quite a bit. So don't think the way we think in our modern Western way of the heart being only the emotional component of our inner selves, but actually our whole inner self. 
So the picture here is then of willful rebellion against God. Not faith in him, but faith in other things. Their sins are also pictured as etched onto the altar, uh, the, uh, the horns of the altar. Now, the horns of the altar served a purpose to hold the sacrifice up, but the blood of the sacrifice was painted onto the horns of the altar, pointing to atonement. And so here there is this reversal. Instead of atoning blood being on the, the horns of the altar, their sins are etched on the horn of the altar. So what he's saying here is there's a worship problem. And the problem isn't simply that you're worshiping false gods and you're following pagan practices. That's clearly a problem. But it's the, the whole problem that your, your worship is completely off. You're trusting in many other things. It's, it's politics. It's, it's the way you're raising your kids. It's, it's everything you're doing. You're completely off base. It is a heart problem, he is saying. So prevalent is their sinfulness that their children have come to think it's normal. Look in verse 2, they've grown up with this kind of practice that they think this is the way things are supposed to be. And because they have continually sinned practicing this idolatry, like the worship of these Asherim, these Asherah poles, these, it was a, a symbol of the fertility goddess. The kids thought this was the way things were supposed to be. And because of this, God says to them, they're going to lose everything, their wealth, their possessions, the heritage of the promised land, verse 3. Because they would not trust in the Lord alone, he was going to discipline him. And then in verse 5, we see that the, the, the psalm that we, uh, similar to what we read this morning in Psalm 1, it's very reminiscent of that. I've said before, I think Jeremiah was likely meditating on the psalms throughout his ministry, and I think this is further evidence because verse 5 sounds so much like, verse 5 and the following verses sound so much like Psalm 1. The person here who puts their confidence in themselves and people, themselves or other people, whatever, they will not prosper, it says. Now, this isn't speaking of the idea that when you go to the doctor or when you go to the person who prepares your taxes that you entrust yourself to them, that you put your confidence in them. This is speaking rather about ultimate trust. Certainly, we, we, we trust each other. We, our society wouldn't function if there wasn't some sense of trust in each other, and when trust is broken down, we suffer that. This is speaking of ultimate trust. Where is our ultimate trust? It says the person who turns away from the Lord will suffer. They're pictured like a scrub brush in the desert. It's not hard to imagine, especially in the heat that we've had this week, what it's like you know, if you've looked at your lawns, they're you know, turning that kind of you know, matte color where all the, the, the blades are curling up. And so here is the picture of a, of a wasteland where there's this scrub brush. No water. It, it doesn't flourish. He mentions the salt, uh, like the, the Dead Sea area where really very little grows there because the salt uh, prevents it. That's the picture of the person who doesn't trust in the Lord. But in verse 7, in contrast to this, the one who trusts in the Lord is called blessed. They have water, and so they flourish. Even when difficulties come, as they do for all of us, none of us is immune to that, they are not filled with anxiety because they trust in the fountain of living water, verse 8 says. This past spring, we looked at the, the idea of fear and anxiety in our adult Sunday school class, and we noted that to be human is to fear. Uh, not all fear is sinful. Uh, if, you're, uh, if you're alive, you have had fear, and you will have fear, and some fear is good. And I was reminded of that again this past week when I'm cutting the grass and the storm's coming in, right? You're trying to get finished up. I was doing the last of the edging, and I was determined to get it all done, even though the lightning and the thunder. But when that one streak came over the sky and it was simultaneously with the thunder, 
I did an about face and was immediately in the garage, and I suddenly no longer cared about the fact that I was only halfway done with the etching. Why? Because fear was protecting me. Lightning tends to be dangerous, so some fear is good. But the one who trusts in the Lord isn't consumed by anxiety. They're not ruled by fear. That's the picture that is being painted here. Their lives still bear fruit because their ultimate trust or confidence is in the confidence is in the Lord who rules over all. Again, Jeremiah emphasizes, emphasizes God's call to his people to trust me. Then in verse 9, Jeremiah drills down to the heart of the matter, goes deeper in what is probably the most well-known verse in chapter 17. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now this verse expresses the sinfulness of all people. None of us is without sin. If you think that you are, come talk to me and I'll have you uh, sign up for nursery duty and you can learn that from the very beginning we come into this world interested in ourselves. We find all kinds of ways to mask that, but we are all sinners. And the problem of sin is external. We talk about the world and the devil, right? Those are external to us. We like to think that the major problem with sin is what is external to us, but what is really our biggest issue is our heart, our flesh. The world, the flesh, and the devil, yeah, the internal problem, that's where we really struggle. Now, this is not saying that we're as bad as we could be. We're not. We all have the potential to be much worse. But rather, it describes that there is no part of us that is unaffected by sin. This is the heart, right? And again, we talked that the heart was the understanding of the entire inner person, not just our emotions. We're not saying emotions are sinful, but logic is righteous. A lot of Christians function that way, and it's really dangerous. This is talking about the whole inner person. We're affected by sin. There's no part of us that is pure. There's no part of us that is righteous. And on top of that, our hearts deceive us. Our hearts are crafty. And therefore, we are desperately sick. And so he asks the question, who can trust it? And of course, the answer, even though it seems rhetorical, we know is no one. We can't trust our hearts. We can't trust ourselves. And even though the question seems rhetorical, the Lord answers it in the next verse. He alone understands our hearts. Why? Because he searches our hearts. He knows our hearts. He tests the mind, it says. And the result of this is he rewards us according to what we've done. And we read that and we think, oh no, where's our hope? Because we know we haven't done righteous things. Maybe some, but not enough, right? How would we ever know? Where is our hope? Well, it's not in ourselves and it's not in other people. Our hope has to be in the Lord alone. He rewards those who seek Him, those who by faith trust Him. This was the message given to Judah. It's the same message that we proclaim today, salvation by faith in God alone. As we've seen numerous times, no person is saved by their righteous deeds, by their good intentions, by their self-righteousness, by their works, by anything that they intend in their heart. Faith is only in our redeeming God. It's in Him alone. It's the only way Judah is saved. It's the only way that we are saved. The wicked seek ill-gotten gain. This is portrayed in verse 11 with the metaphor of the partridge. And this is Jeremiah's way of kind of reminding the people that, yeah, we still ask the question, why do the wicked prosper? And he's saying, well, in the end, they don't. Okay? Yet the partridge would go lay on eggs that were not their own. They would take what was not their own. 
And he's saying that it looks like they're prospering now, but in the end, they don't. Those who oppress others for personal gain, those who take what is not theirs, they will lose all they have in the end. And then verses 12 to 18, this is another one of Jeremiah's confessions or complaints. He begins it with this kind of psalm-like, upward-looking, praising God for who he is. Uh, God is the hope of Israel, the fountain of living water who's enthroned on high. All who reject him will be put to shame. He said their names will be written in the earth or in the dust, meaning that as soon as the wind blows, it's gone. Their history will be gone with it. And then Jeremiah, after praising the Lord, calls out for him to be healed. Save me from the people who persecute me. Because the people of Judah were taunting him. They were taunting him because no judgment was coming. They, they felt pretty good about things. There were little skirmishes here and there. Some kings were getting uprooted. We've talked about that. But, but there was no real judgment coming. And so he calls on Yahweh to, 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 to come in judgment. He says, I faithfully shepherded this people. I've delivered the message that you have given me to deliver. In a sense, he's, he's praying, show yourself true and mighty, Lord, and bring your promised judgment on these wayward people who refuse to trust in you. He's not praying for some kind of selfish revenge, but he's just saying, Lord, do what you said you would do. And don't we, don't we relate to this? Because we live in a day where we call, we, we say there's sin and, and, and yet the world looks and says, hey, I'm doing pretty good. And we think, Lord, show yourself mighty. And God says again and again to Jeremiah and to the people, trust me, trust me. In the final section, Jeremiah turns to the Sabbath. And that may seem like a strange subject or you may think that I just tack this on, but stick with me because this still deals with trusting in the Lord. The Sabbath was given as a sign of the covenant, as a good gift for the people's benefit to teach them to trust the Lord. Before we get into that, note, though, how this the stage is set. Jeremiah is told to go to the main gate where the kings and so forth would come through. He's later told to go to all the gates because all the inhabitants of the land need to hear this. But his, his address begins with the leadership, and we have seen this over and over again, that the leadership had failed, that the priests, the kings had failed to to. to Speak truth to the people. So Jeremiah is instructed to go so that all will hear. Everybody needs to hear this message. And then to emphasize the importance of this message, look in verses 19 to 21. Three times it says, this is the word of the Lord. So, you know, the whole message that Jeremiah is bringing is the word of the Lord. It's not the message of Jeremiah. But it's really emphasized here that, you know, pay attention, listen. And this is the message. Take care for the sake of your lives. In other words, this is a life or death matter. In verse 21, Do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day or bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. Do not carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath or do any work, but keep the Sabbath day holy as I commanded your fathers. Now, the command to keep the Sabbath is found in the Ten Commandments given on Mount Sinai. But it's not the first time we see it in Scripture. We go all the way back to the beginning. Genesis 2, right in the very beginning, in the order of creation, when God had made everything, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So the pattern is set at the very beginning. We were made to rest from our work. God knows us. He made us. He knows our frame. He knows our limitations. That's what Psalm 103 says. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. 
And so he established, and he set the pattern himself to rest. Yet the giving of the Sabbath, like I said, is, is also a sign of the covenant. Exodus 31.13 says that. That it's simply not for our rest, but it is to demonstrate that God covenanted with us. It's a reminder of the covenant promises. And so the importance of this is that we would trust him. That he is the establisher of the covenant and the keeper of the covenant. Now I say our trust here, and not just Israel's trust, because it still applies. Because the moral law remains. The moral law found in the Ten Commandments reveals God's holy character and his holy requirement. And of course, we cannot meet that requirement. So we thank God for the gospel of Jesus, that in Christ the law was fulfilled on our behalf. But because God never changes, his moral law remains for our benefit. It is not burdensome. It benefits us. We don't have time to unpack the whole Ten Commandments, but if you look at the Sabbath, it, it kind of rests between, serves as a hinge between the, those commandments given to honor God and those commandments that have more of a, a, a horizontal, man-to-man relationship. And there's a connection here. And so it's still in effect for us to follow as a guide for how to please God and how to live abundantly. And I can say that without digging into the weeds of what it looks like to honor the Sabbath, the very basic level of what it means to honor the Sabbath is doing what you're doing right now. It's gathering for worship. Make that, that's, that's just Sabbath 101 right there. Gather for worship. Do not neglect the gathering together. It is so important. Now, honoring the Sabbath demonstrates that our trust is in God as our provider rather than us because we stop working. We stop looking to our own resources. You know, even though all the work is piled up over here, we say we're going to walk away from it and we're going to honor God. We're not going to let that get in the way of, at the very minimum, gathering for worship. Now, even though God establishes the Sabbath in Genesis 2, we see it given at Mount Sinai, there's another evidence of the Sabbath before we get to Sinai. There's one more example, and that is when the Lord feeds his people in the wilderness before they even get to Sinai. After, after he gets them out of Egypt, they're, they're making their way there. They, uh, they complain about the food situation, and God gives them a special provision of this manna. And in doing this, you remember the routine with the manna. It was you gather what you needed. He gave them specific amounts. And then at the end of the day, whatever was left, it rotted. It didn't last, didn't keep. Uh, whatever it was, and it was manna literally means what is it. So it was something, you know, it was really special food. Uh, it only lasted for the day. There was no refrigeration. There was no way to preserve it. And so you had to the next morning get up and gather your manna for the day. But God gives special instructions for Friday. He says, on Friday, you're going to gather twice as much. Because Jewish Sabbath's on Saturday. You're not going to gather on Saturday. And you can hear the people like, whoa, 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 God, it won't keep. It rots. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't last. We'll, we'll go hungry. We'll die. And God says, trust me. Trust me. Do what I say. Don't work on the Sabbath. Gather twice as much. And guess what? God was faithful. The food didn't rot. It lasted through the Sabbath. And they had all that they needed. So the message that God sends through Jeremiah is that they trust God by keeping the Sabbath and that if they do, then he will restore him. The city of Jerusalem will be restored, verse 25. This is to say the people will return. They will once again inhabit the promised land. And while this is a call for repentance, 
for this people and in, in, in this point in history. The exiles would one day read Jeremiah, and of course, we read Jeremiah. And it is a reminder of the importance of trusting in God, that he will, no matter what is going on in your life, that you would trust God as your provider. Over and over, we see in the passage this theme of trusting in God, to believe in him in spite of their circumstances or what others were telling them. And it is the same message that we need in our own day. The world around us says that we're fools. They say it makes more sense to believe we're simply here as a cosmic accident. In line with this thinking, there is no purpose for our lives, that we're, you know, there's no objective reality, that we basically uh, just should do whatever we want. Nothing really matters. Not only do we hear such ideas, we see the wicked prosper around us. Many of the wicked seem to have amazing lives. They have power and wealth, and they use that to gain more power and more wealth. And we wonder, aren't we supposed to want a piece of that? Even more, we're not spared from suffering. We lose. We hurt. We grieve. Aren't we not God's children? And through all of these things, God is saying to us, trust me. You don't know everything. You don't see everything. I do. And I'm good. So trust me. Another pastor this past week shared that they were having a backyard uh, fence put up. This is cheesy. I'll go ahead and tell you. But it makes the point. Um, Had a backyard fence put up. The crews there installing the fence took them a couple days. They tied up their dog in the backyard. The dog knew these strangers weren't supposed to be here. The dog didn't like being tied up in the first place, and so the dog pitched a royal fit. Barked and barked and barked and barked. And the pastor's comment was, if he only knew it was for his own good. One day, the dog would experience the freedom of not having to be cooped up inside and not having to be tied up outside, but would have his own fenced-in backyard to run around and enjoy the freedom that was his. Now, I'm not saying, and please don't mishear me, that if you just believe, you'll have your backyard fence. Okay? This is not a prosperity gospel. But I'm saying that we do need to have eyes to trust the Lord because we don't know everything and we don't see everything. I don't know what the future is for any of us. I don't know that in, a, in an earthly sense. I do know what the future is beyond this life, and there is great comfort in this. When Jesus said, in my Father's house are many rooms, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to, my, take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That, that is comforting. It is a great hope for us that one day we will be delivered from this life, from death, from sin, and from all its effects. But what about right now? What about what we're living in right now? Let me reread Jeremiah's words for us all to hear again. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and it is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Trust in the Lord the fountain of living water, who will even in times of drought and heat ensure that your roots remain nourished. How do we know this? How are we sure that he keeps his promises? 
we look to the cross. We look back to the cross, to a dead tree where Jesus was hung and he died in our place for our sin that we might become living trees to flourish and to grow and to produce fruit. We can have assurance that he keeps his promises because we can look back to the cross and see what he did for us. I can't tell you what the specifics will look like. I can tell you I've been surprised many times by how God has worked. I can tell you for sure it won't be pain-free because none of us get that. I can't tell you where it will end up. It will probably be different than you imagine. But all I can say is trust Him. Trust in the Lord. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who trusts in Him. Let's pray. Father, you know our hearts and you test our minds. And that is a a, a uh, fear-inducing notion, if it weren't for Jesus. Because if it weren't for Christ's atoning blood on that altar, it would be our sins etched there. And we couldn't stand before you. But what a comfort it is to be your children, redeemed and, and bought back. Lord, we come to you and, and we confess that we, we don't trust you as we should. We are often controlled and dominated by fear and anxiety. Lord, would you do the work in our hearts to cause us to trust you? Would you open our eyes to your promises? Would you give us a, a fresh perspective on the familiar words of so many of these promises that I just read, they're, they're familiar to us, and so they, they lose some of their impact in our lives unless you, by your Spirit, take and, and, and really show it to us, Lord. Show us that you're good. Show us that you are an eternal rock. Show us that you are a refuge and our strength, that you're a mighty tower. Show us that you keep your promises, that you never change. And help us to believe this and to walk in great assurance and hope and confidence in who you are, not in ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing in response.